You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Space, place, and time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. I hope you're doing okay. I'm in a good mood as I record this, not only because of this week's guest, but also because we have some exciting things going on at Back to the Light, which I will be sharing with you at the break. But right now, I want to get straight into the episode. My guest is the founder of one of my all-time favorite bands, Shudder to Think. He's also a prolific solo artist and film and television composer. You've heard his music in The State, Wet Hot American Summer, Wanderlust, Reno 911, School of Rock, New Amsterdam, and more. You can find him online at craigwedren.com. That's Craig, W-E-D-R-E-N.com. It was an unbelievable honor to speak to him for the show. This is my conversation with Craig Wedren. Craig, thanks so much for joining me on the show. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's nice to meet you, too. Yes. Actually, believe it or not, and I do not blame you for not remembering this, but I, but we did meet briefly in 1995. Really? Yes, at a Shudder to Think show at the New Daisy Theater. Where's the New Daisy? It, oh, it's in Memphis, Tennessee, I should have said. Oh, I love Memphis. It was when uh, you were opening for the Foo Fighters on that tour. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. That was... Uh... I'm sure there were a lot of haters in that audience. Haters? Why do you, why do you say there were a lot of haters in that audience? It's just um, uh, it, Foo Fighters audience at that time, because I don't even think that their first record had come out. It was, it was l- a lot of leftover Nirvana fans, and um, Nirvana got so huge that it was just sort of every knucklehead in the room. And um, particularly down south, the combination of knucklehead dudes and like whatever's in the water down there usually meant that we got a whole lot of um, shit thrown at us. And uh, um, kind of uh, homophobic epithets. There, there, there were also, though, I, it should be said, because it was such a broader audience than the sort of usual um, discord or like art weirdos, um, the people who loved it and got turned on to our music there, uh, you know, really became lifers, which was great. So it was totally worth it. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because my my memory of seeing you guys at that show is is really really different. I maybe I was standing next to the right people, but I was around a couple of really hardcore Shudder to Think fans. Oh, couple, that's cool. A couple of girls, and they both knew every single word that came out of your mouth. And I just remember standing there, going, "Wow, if, I, I guess I need to look this band up." <laughs> yeah, that was that was our thing. We were just like g- girls and gays. Go for them, because, you know, <laughs> if girls like you and gays like you, then A, you're going to have a really good time. You're actually going to be able to talk uh, about, um, you know, thoughts and feelings. 
And eventually everybody else is going to follow along because then the, the hetero guys, of course, want to go where the girls go. And, um, you know, until at least in, in the 20th century, gay underground culture always eventually became, <laughs> always eventually became uh, kind of the best of mainstream. To, to radically generalize and paint with too broad a brush. So that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. And maybe it was a great show. Who knows? Oh, it was, it was kind of a life changing show for me. I remember going out and buying Pony Express record that week. And to this day, it's one of my favorite records. Thank you, dude. That really, 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 really means a lot to hear. I appreciate it. So I want to ask about so much, um, but I'm curious if you don't mind indulging, I want to go back before Shudder to Think and just ask how you got into music. It was always there. I came from sort of a, I, I grew up in Cleveland for the most part. And um, I didn't move to D.C. till I was a junior in high school. And um, my I lived with my mom in Cleveland and my mom's whole side of the family. Everybody loved music, mom and dad's side. Um, there were... There were a couple musical, more like musical theater cousins and aunts and uncles on my mom's side, but for the most part, um, no artists, um, overtly, like nobody who uh, took the big leap. And um, my mom and I, by extension, literal extension, um, we were just huge radio sing-alongers and Cleveland had great radio in the seventies. And, um, so we were just the kind of melody, uh, absorbers where like every little melodic and phrasing nuance sort of got in there. And I remember my mom might disagree with this, but I remember my mom having that, um, gift. Um, I call it a gift because it was something that served me extremely well in my, in my career, in my occupation. But, but you know, w whatever that characteristic is that attracts certain people to um, melodies and like perfect memory of exact melodies was something that we both had. And so we were always singing along to the radio and I always had this nice falsetto part of my voice or like whatever the high part was. And, um, and so it was in there. I just didn't realize it because it never occurred to me until kiss came along and took over my life. And maybe Elton John at the, around the same time, or maybe the Bee Gees, like kiss and the Bee Gees probably. Um, that music but certainly kiss because it was they were a bunch of like superhero looking monster jews and those were all three things i could totally relate to being like a jewish kid in the suburbs who was obsessed with monsters and superheroes so once i sort of pieced that together which would have been around age nine i suppose I was like, oh, ding, 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 ding. That's what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like a huge rock star. And by the time my classmates who were um, similarly inclined 
kind of got it together. I guess I, I guess I matured kind of young. So like most of the people who decided they wanted to be musicians, it probably wasn't until about seventh grade that we all kind of figured out that we all wanted to be musicians and we should start a band. Um, they, they were all better at other instruments that I, than I was cause I was lazy about practicing and I really only wanted to like play black Sabbath on guitar. I didn't re- actually want to like learn scales or do anything like that. Um, and because I was physically mature for my age and had, you know, a couple nice parts of my voice, um, and again, was very melodically inclined. I was like, Oh, I guess I'll be the singer. And, uh, so that was when I was about 12. And then I went on to just sing in, you know, it was, it was a fairly typical trajectory of singing in cover bands, everything from journey to the cars, to the clash, to the sex pistols. Um, and then a lot of new wave and punk as we got a little bit older. Um, so that by the time I moved to Washington DC, I'd already, and by the time Shutter Think formed, which was my senior year of high school, um, I'd already been singing in bands, uh, and I would say, I don't think I was writing a lot of songs from scratch, but I was writing a lot of vocal parts and, um, melodies and lyrics and doing a lot of writing. Um, so I kind of already had this, these little pieces of what would eventually kind of organically become my style. They were, they were, they were already there. Um, so I was sort of lucky in that respect that I started really young without necessarily knowing it. And um, because I was always sort of a thinker and a writer and a, a very critical listener, for better and for worse, by the time Shutter to Think happened, I really, really knew um, what I did and didn't want to be. Uh, just aesthetically. And, um, and so it just really, 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 I think served me and us in the sense that like, we just had an identity, like, uh, from the, from the get-go. Which came first, forming the band or discovering the DC punk scene? Um, the DC punk scene, um, there was no avoiding it. If you were, a, if you were into punk, and post-punk and new wave. If you're into underground music, underground rock music, um, in the eighties and you came to DC, there was absolutely no way you wouldn't, you know, it's, it's gravitational pull was very, very powerful. So I think maybe when I was in Cleveland, I had, um, out of step by minor threat and, I don't remember if I knew Rites of Spring before I got to DC or right when I hit DC, but um, the Rites of Spring record and Out of Step by Minor Threat were just huge for me. And then I Against I by Bad Brains, which I think was 85 or 86, was also just a a massive... um, sort of meteoric formative tome of musical ideas and, you know, sort of, uh, merging of like melody, um, hardcore 
technique and sort of genre, almost psychedelic genre bursting that really just kind of <laughs> suited my sensibility. So, so, um, moving to DC was moving into the DC punk rock community because if you're, you know, you were, if you're a kid, you were going to shows and it was such a communal, um, um, regular weekend event that centered around boys and girls and, um, politics and music and, you know, the outdoors, the weather was so much better in DC than it was in Cleveland. You know, in Cleveland, we would go to shows and it would be the dead of winter and you'd be, you'd freeze your ass off in some nights of Columbus hall. And, um, you know, so there was, there was that sort of huddling together, but in DC, it really felt like a kind of, uh, a liberation. Was it difficult to break into that scene at all and to be, to find acceptance there? It was extraordinarily difficult. It, it was, n- n- nor do I think was it intentional. Um, it's interesting. As with any scene or, or uh, culture or subculture, um, there, there tends to be a hierarchy and um discord was kind of at the at the you know at the at the top of that pyramid despite ian's politics which really would um i imagine go against that type of traditional pyramid-shaped hierarchy it seems to be, at least in the 20th century, I think less so now with the advent, the sort of flattening of uh, the internet and digital culture. But certainly in the 20th century, that seemed to be the natural way we organized things. Um, and so there was this cool kids factor with a lot of the discord scene plus everybody was you know a teenager or in their 20s so there's also that natural kind of like breakfast club style identity sorting that happened again that has changed i suspect somewhat has shapeshifted in the 21st century but um there was a perception that there was a cool group and they were the discord kids um for the most part no one individual in that so-called alleged cool group would have um, touted or espoused the philosophy of the cool kid group, but it just was what naturally happened. And if you were outside of it, which I was, I mean, I can't, I'd come from Cleveland and as I said, I was like into disco and punk and hard rock and top four, like everything. I loved it all. Um, and I looked really weird and I sang really weird or, you know, relative to most hardcore, um, screamers, even though I enjoyed a lot of, uh, that music. Um, so I felt, I felt very outside of that group, but I was also lucky in that I was a very social person and I really loved people and I still do. Um, so I would just go to shows and, and really just make friends. So, I, so I should say, I should say I was like both inside and outside it 
you know, I was, I certainly never felt like I was at the core of, you know, the cool group, but, but I could mix and mingle and really, you know, be welcome into that circle. Um, Shudder to Think, which was a band called Stooge before it became Shudder, before I joined and before it became Shudder to Think and was a, a more traditional DC hardcore band. Um, Stu, who started the band, Stuart Hill, um, and was the bass player, he was more a part of the DC punk rock scene, the politics, um, the social, the socio-political aspect of it. Chris, the guitar player, was kind of kind of like me, sort of a little bit in, a little bit out. And Mike was a little bit older. Um, he may have even been a te- like a math teacher at that point. And he like, you know, he was certainly kind of the coolest, most sophisticated, elegant of the bunch. He, you know, had like a leather jacket and, you know, the sort of cuffed motorcycle boot wearing or well, he probably didn't wear motorcycle boots but he like you know he had a beautiful motorcycle and he was like a grown-up um so i think he was kind of beyond such childish and fanciful things as like the in group and the out group but was a huge music nerd as we all were um the truth is is that anyone in that world in that sort of like underground music scene and social scene and art scene um, was a little bit of an outsider. So I would say, despite what anybody's perceptions were about in-groups and out-groups and um, Discord having this kind of you know hold over the, the scene, um, everybody was very similar, um, trying to find their way not really interested in traditional identity, but still young and, and, and assertive in, in that way that I think is natural, um, where you're trying to know yourself and project yourself. You know, you're sort of clawing your way outward, like inward and outward at the same time. And, um, so we were sort of this misfit band, like very misfit, um, in large part because of my singing style and lyric and whatever my 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 lyrical style was, um, which was tended toward the more surreal, psychedelic, and um, and like internal emotional rather than um, external, social, and political. So it took people a few years to decide whether or not they liked us. And the people who liked us, it, it's, it goes back to what I was saying about the Foo Fighters crowds. The people who liked us loved us um, in like, a, in like a, a, an intense, um, almost crazy way sometimes. Um, and the people who hated us really, really hated us in, in an almost intense, crazy way, which was great. You know, we were like, good, then we're doing something right. And we're sticking to our guns. And even if we're overdoing it at times, um, at least we're 
you know, being authentic to our, to our young selves. You mentioned a couple of times about your thinking your singing style may have been a roadblock for some people accepting the band. I personally have always loved your voice. It was one of the first things I connected with when I saw you guys at that show in 95, that, and the fact that your drummer was wearing like a 10 foot poncho or something. (laughs) How did, where, what are the influences? How did that singing style, the vibrato and the falsetto, how did you develop that? Those were some things, you know, like I said, from singing in the car with my mom, those were some things, a couple, like the falsetto I always had, and that sort of um, tenor, that like belting tenor, uh, almost operatic vibrato thing I always had. And and I, I just discovered them while singing in... Um, cover bands basically probably singing again black sabbath i mean not that ozzy had a vibrato but but singing in that range i sort of probably discovered that um having to imitate singers with higher voices than i had like steve perry i probably really really developed my upper register and that sort of passaggio between tenor belty voice and like strong falsetto. And in the eighties in particular, um, may like, like almost castrato tenor voices were so popular in, um, in rock, you know, like Bruce Dickinson from, uh, from, uh, you know, Iron Maiden, um, Judas Priest, like all, all those metal bands and all of the sort of journey-esque pop bands, they were just like singing for the rafters. And as you can hear by my speaking voice, like I don't have a super high voice. Um, it's kind of neither nor. And, um, but I had to sing like these people because we were a cover band, you know, I probably figured out a lot of false, not false. I probably found my vibrato doing a lot of David Lee Roth, <laughs> doing a lot of Van Halen. Cause he always had that nice, you know, that sort of like, um, uh, that, that weird, almost like cartoon jazz vibrato that he would use. And I'm a huge, uh, Van, David Lee Roth era Van and Van Halen fan and David Lee Roth fan, and so um, and I could always do really good Diamond Dave imitations. So we would play as many Van Halen songs as we could in my seventh and eighth grade band. Um, and like you know, we would go to eighth grade parties and people would be like, "Play you know, sing Ice Cream Man" and, and stuff like that. So so I got pretty good at that, or or I discovered that I had that part of my voice. And so it was sort of like these couple kind of disconnected parts of my voice. And I was always good at imitating people. Um, so I did a really good, like, Rick Ocasek and a really good, like, Rick Springfield and a great Johnny Rotten. Um, so it was interesting. Um, Stuart Hill and I did a podcast episode 
the other day for this uh, for this pod called End on End, which does an episode for every Discord release. And they were doing one around Shudder to Think's very first single, which came out in like 1986 or 87 or something like that. And uh, maybe it was recorded in 86, came out in 87. But it sent me, sent me back listening to it. And it's crazy to listen to because like you can hear that I'm singing in like five different, excuse me, in like five different voices that are sort of disconnected from one another. There's this like weird, creepy, squealy, yelpy girl baby voice, like super falsetto. There's like a really intense, almost Joe Elliott, Def Leppard screaming metal voice. And then there's this like really low voice. And then there's that belty kind of vibrato thing, but it, but they're not really connected. It just sounds more schizophrenic. You hear like Susie and Ozzy and, you know, Jello Biafra in there, like all these crazy people who I had been imitating in cover bands. Um, but without it being sort of quite yet grounded in my body into like one voice, and so I guess I had like all of those pieces just from imitating people. And then it took a number of years to kind of find the connective tissue and kind of integrate and synthesize it all. Now, at this point in my life, I'm 51. Now I really just sing like me, you know, I don't, I, I don't really hear anybody else's voice in my singing unless I'm deliberately kind of channeling. Like I did a Cat Stevens cover recently for a TV show that I'm working on. And, um, and just, I'm sure because of my kind of formative years singing in cover bands, there's no way to get all of Cat Stevens out of my performance of it. It's just in there. Right. And Cat Stevens has such a specific voice that you kind of want to mimic a little bit. And so it's just kind of in there, you know, so, so, but, but when I'm singing my own stuff, it just feels like me now, although I'm sure underneath the hood is a synthesis of, you know, every voice I've ever heard and imitated. There's a lot of Frank Sinatra in there now. There's, um, I don't know. It's weird. If I think about different records, particularly Shudder to Think records, I can, I can think about what singers were sort of influencing my vocal style for each record. Um, but now I don't really think about that so much. As memory serves, and this will be the last time I bring up the show, you do a pretty fair Steve Perry impression as well. Yeah, we yeah we, we, we used to do Love and Touch and Squeeze and with Foo Fighters. By the way, I want to be very, very clear. I loved that Foo Fighters tour. Um, and we... Shudder to Think and Foo Fighters loved fucking with the sort of more frat um, segment of the audience by like coming out and playing Journey covers. Um, you know, so by no means is it a diss of uh, Foo Fighters or that tour or their audience. It was just challenging at times because, um, you know, because by the end of Nirvana, it had gotten so frat. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, I think somewhere on the, I think somewhere on YouTube there's, there's, um, there's video of that. It was nice. It was like, getting, it was like getting to be in my eighth grade band again. <laughs> I was, was that something you guys did every night or was that just an occasional thing? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, and we definitely did it a bunch. I was actually talking to Pat Smear the other day and he was reminding me of it, which was nice. I mentioned earlier that Pony Express record was my favorite of the band's uh, work. And that's your first on a major label. So I kind of want to ask about the decision process that went into deciding to jump from Discord to the major labels. Sure. Um, We were always, I mean, you know, we were a very democratic group and everybody had sort of their own place on the spectrum of whether to keep it indie or blow it out and sign to a major and try and reach as many people as possible. Um, I might've been the most extreme on the side of no compromise musically while doing whatever we could to reach as many people as possible with that music. Because for me, it was always about a kind of free punk was always about a kind of freedom and independence of imagination and vision. And music was always about this circuit that would start within oneself, satisfy the self, satisfy the song, and then complete the circuit by connecting to others, connect the music to others. Um, and I always, you know, (laughs) I started with the story of wanting to be a huge rock star when I was like nine years old because of Kiss and Alton John and everybody and everything I was into and came from a pretty traditional family who measured success, um, in kind of dollars and cents. Um, so, so I, that whole ethos, that whole like underground ethos was literally never an issue for me. Um, I knew I was not going to sell myself out musically. So how could I possibly sell? As long as the music was authentic, there was no way to sell out. Right. was my feeling about it. Um, everybody else in the band had their own versions of that. And I don't want to speak for them. Um, probably Stuart, had the most, you know, he, he was the most, um, kind of DC scene minded of all of us. So, so he, he probably had the most sort of reticence or hesitation about signing to a major, but by the time we put out, get your goat on discord, you know, we were starting to get popular and, and our music was continuing to grow and we sort of felt like and 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 that would have been around you know around when um nirvana broke and suddenly you could get a major label deal like on the corner um 
so A&R people were coming to shows. Some bands were signing to major labels. Some bands weren't. Um, I wanted to reach as many people as possible. And I think at that point, like everybody, we, we needed to make a decision about whether we were going to make a career of it, in which case we we're probably going to need to sign to a major and take that advance money and that um, commercial support and take that risk. Uh, or we were all going to have to get jobs and just kind of continue doing what we'd been doing, which was to record and to tour on vacations and, you know, catch as catch can. Um, I had just graduated college. So get your goat. Uh, I think we made my senior year of college, maybe. And so I was thinking about life. And for me, there was no question like I was going to be making music. And I was going to do everything I needed to do to make the music that I needed to make um, and reach as many people as possible doing it. And I think, honestly, everybody just kind of agreed by that point that we wanted to go for it. And that now was the time. I mean, it was clearly not a um, not a moment that was going to last. It was totally bizarre that all of this weird-ass music was getting so much financial backing like Melvin's or Sonic Youth or, you know, My Bloody Valentine. Um, and so we just did it. We talked to a lot of different labels. Um, and there was a guy named Michael Goldstone from Epic Records who had signed Pearl Jam. And Eddie Vedder had turned Michael on to us because he was a big fan, particularly of this song called Pebbles off of um, Get Your Go. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know it well. Off of Get Your Go. Thanks. And, uh, and it seemed like the best bet. It really, we just, he, he was so intelligent. He, he was very honest with us. I think he said, he was like, look, I don't, and, and, and we were, you know, we were coming to Epic with all of the music that would become Pony Express record. Um, this was not, you know, there was no bait and switch. We weren't like, we're going to make Pearl Jam music or Nirvana music. We're like, this, this is what we do. This is what we got. Um, and Michael said, he was like, look, I, I can't honestly say that I understand or love all of your music but i see the way people react to it um and i'm a good a and r guy and and uh that's what we do we notice how fans respond um and then we build on that and we thought great um can't be too bad, right? Being in the same stable, like with the same uh, AR guy as Pearl Jam, and, and he signed Rage Against the Machine too. So so we did it. We took the leap knowing full well, you know, the the sort of all the stories. We'd read all the books, you know. We didn't um, we didn't kid ourselves that we were gonna change the system. We just hoped that the system wouldn't destroy us um you know which it half did and half didn't did you guys get the 
courtship process that you always hear about whining and dining with guys in suits on yes, cell phones. Totally. It was that. the best. We loved it. <laughs> we got so many good meals and we were so young, you know, it was like earlier mid twenties. So we were so psyched for all the margaritas you could drink and we were living in New York city by that point. So, you know, the good restaurants were really, really good. Um, and everybody still had expense accounts then. So it was really, really fun. And a lot of the NR people were only a little bit older than us. So it was really just like a bunch of kids hanging out, getting drunk on dad's credit card. Well, then Pony Express record comes out. You guys have a pretty big MTV hit. I mean, I, I, this is a difficult question, but I mean, what was it like to sort of be a part of that alternative wave of the mid nineties is and having was, a hit on MTV back when that really, really meant something. It was sort of, it was sort of both. Um, we were never great fans of the alternative mainstream as a genre. Um, we were certainly fans of plenty of bands that um, enjoyed success in that era and, and, and friends with some of those bands. But when you're inside of it, you sort of see it for what it is, which is really just like a lot of commerce and um, media hype. It's a lot of temporary stuff. You see how, I don't know if passe is the word, but how, how passing it all is um so it was super fun in certain ways it was extraordinarily stressful in other ways in part because of the pressure we we were putting on ourselves to stick to our guns and to do everything we could to um you know we we wanted to play the game we wanted to we wanted to reach more people, um, but fairly quickly and very early on for me, although I don't think it dawned on me clearly in a way that I was necessarily able to articulate it. Um, I realized that the the limitations, the, the demands of an album cycle, write an album, record an album, tour an album, write an album, record an album, tour an album, promote. Um, mixed with the, again, 20th century limitations of being on a major label, which is to say they needed to be able to market you very specifically and to kind of silo you in a clear way. You are a Pearl Jam type band. You are a Nirvana type band. Um, you are a Fugazi. You are a Fugazi, right? We just didn't fit into any of it. And the things that we wanted to do creatively and musically increasingly um just encompassed so much more than commercially made sense 
to a label like Epic at the time, we wanted to do, we wanted to compose film soundtracks. We wanted to make a lot of different kinds of music from shudder to think music to, um, you know, something more akin to pop music or soul music or electronic music or entirely experimental um, uh, ambient or noise music. We wanted to produce things for other people. We wanted to write for other people, but we didn't, we didn't have the um, popularity or the clout or the maturity yet to quite know how to um, kind of piece it all together in a way uh, that could or would convince Sony to back us in our vision. Um, and so we started getting very discouraged and drifting apart internally and becoming disenchanted, although not surprised. Uh, you know, again, it's like we knew what we were signing up for. <clears throat> we just thought we were um, better, stronger, faster than it turned out we actually <laughs> were. So I think due to internal pressures and the fact that Pony Express record, as much as like you said, you know, we had a sort of a minor alternative hit. Um, even, even that viewing it from the inside, it was very, at least partially manufactured, like to the outside, it appeared that we had a hit on the inside. There was all sorts of wheeling and dealing going on to get that video on MTV. Um, there was some, and this could be apocryphal, but, but I think it's true. There was some like deal that was made with MTV that if they would make X French t-shirt, like a buzz clip on 120 minutes that MTV could have like exclusive rights to some upcoming Michael Jackson video, you know, that was coming out and it was, you know, so any, any illusions we had going in that we would be, that we would break worldwide in a big way based solely on our merits um, was fairly quickly dashed by the reality of the, of the music business at the time. And that was okay. Like we could handle it, but Pony Express record and X French t-shirt um, as much as they, I think to date are the most popular things we ever did. They didn't do well enough to um to survive the changes that were happening in music like things were moving like in the alternative realm things were moving more toward like tool that kind of like post nine inch nails stuff like tool and corn and stuff like that which wasn't really us um and then things were moving more toward uh what would become kind of boy band pop music, which wasn't really us. Um, obviously like hip hop and R and B was like incredible at the time. 
Um, but it was really moving away in terms of rock and alternative music from, uh, I mean, I, I, this will sound, this may, at the risk of sounding pretentious or like tooting our own horn, more like visionary stuff, you know, and I say visionary, not in a, not in a like, we are visionaries, but, but in the sense that like artists who have like distinct visions for like who they are and what they do. Um, you know, I think the thing that one of the things that appealed and appeals um, to people about Shutter to Think is we were just us. You know, we, we were just sort of a category of, of one. And it, it just, it wasn't sustainable. Um, so, so if we were going to continue on doing what we wanted to do, which was sort of turn Shutter to Think into more of almost this... Um, like a like a like a music house like a like a production house we, we would have had to have done it on our own steam and you know it, it it there was already too much internal damage you know just the the old-fashioned traditional um vh1 behind the music egos uh too much touring too much being in a band together um growing up stuff that we needed we needed to do so we, so we wound up you know hitting pause but you more or less did those things as a solo artist yes because you 100 percent. yeah w- w- I, I do exactly what shutter to think was talking about doing at the time we just we just didn't do it as a band and nathan too nathan does all that stuff too time out Before we get back to Craig Wedren, there are a couple of things going on at Back to the Light HQ that I'd like to make you aware of. Number one, this is the last week of the Back to the Light GoFundMe campaign. And as a thank you gift to all donors, we have created an exclusive compilation featuring music from the entire roster. That's me, Loose Opinions, Jeremy Scott, Two Way Radio, Joshua C. Travis, Blind Copy, and Tape Deck. The only way you can get this compilation is by donating to the GoFundMe, which you can find at the support tab at backtothelight.net or by searching for Back to the Light at GoFundMe.com. Please check that out and consider donating. The second thing I want to mention is the debut single by Back to the Light artist Joshua C. Travis. It's called Paper Airplane, and it will be available on Spotify and all digital outlets on May 7th. You can also get it at joshuacetravis.bandcamp.com. For more information on everything Back to the Light related, visit backtothelight.net. Thank you in advance. And now, the ad. Great 
these plans we shared seem wrecked your power
You've Just Heard On My Tongue, a new single by my guest Craig Wedren. Now let's get back to our conversation. How did you get involved in working in scoring and soundtracks for films and TV? So growing up in Cleveland, my two best friends were a guy. Well, I mean, I had a I had a whole crew of best friends, but two of my best friends and my oldest friends um, were and still are a guy named David Wayne and a guy named Stuart Blumberg. Um, David grew up to be a filmmaker and a comedian who made Wet Hot American Summer and was in the state and a thousand other things. Stuart. Uh, grew up to be a screenwriter and a director who um, who wrote The Kids Are Right and directed um, wrote and directed Thank You for Sharing. Thanks for sharing. Um, so David and I, so this was in Cleveland, David and I went to NYU together. And he was in film school. He pretty quickly got into a comedy group, interestingly, with the um, the children's author Mo Willems, and who, if you have kids, he uh, he wrote like "Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus" and like huge, huge, like almost Dr. Seuss level, um, amazing, amazing cartoonist and all. And um, who else is in that group? Ken Marino was in that group. And, and it gradually became this comedy group called The State, which um, if you were alive in the 90s and watching MTV, you probably watched The State. Full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of The State. Me too. I'm a massive fan of The State. Um, they were also my best friends in college, and they were my, my, my crew, and most of them were in film school. So by the time I got to NYU, Shudder to Think already had like a single, you know, it's little EP and we and our first record was coming out my freshman year. And so I was like this music guy, like a real music guy with records. And and on weekends and vacations I would go on tour. So barring any actual composers living in our dorm or existing in the film school, my friends, mostly from the state, who were mostly in film school, would turn to me um, for music for their school projects. I was also studying experimental theater and doing a lot of sound installation stuff. A lot, again, of more experimental, ambient, um, environmental sound theater pieces so people in the theater school would also come to me for sound design and composition um and i was untrained but had a really distinct um but but had had unique clear musical ideas um and was super excited to get into that so throughout college while Shutter to Think was kind of this one parallel thing, there was this other kind of proto soundtracky situation happening. So that by the time I graduated, um, you know, I had already done a couple student films and a, and a few theater pieces. And um, when the state got 
and I and I had done music and sound for the states pre-state. They were called they were called the New Group, and they did a lot of like black box live theater stuff. So I would do sound for them sometimes and music for them. And so it was just this very natural thing that, um, and I did and I did some music. I would score the occasional skit sketch for the state and did the theme song for the state. Um, where I, where I sampled Nation of Ulysses, another great Discord band, um, and then like sang and played ukulele on it. It was super fun. People seemed to love it. So it was sort of an alter ego that was happening. And I had always had it in my head that I wanted to score movies or do music for movies because um, we were all just massive film buffs, like almost as much as music, I would say. And um, and by the time Shutter to Think sort of got road weary, some of our friends were starting to make their first movies. Um, there was a guy who, with whom we'd become close, named Jesse Parrots, who had played bass in the Lemonheads, who was making his first movie, and um, he and I had been roommates for a little while. It was a very low-budget indie movie called First Love, Last Rights. And one of the main characters needed a whole collection of oldies singles for it. So he asked Shutter to Think to do it. And we wound up writing all these songs and getting all of our friends in the music in, in, the, in, the, in, in other bands to sing um, so that it sounded like different artists, Jeff Buckley, John Doe. Um, John wasn't a friend of ours, but because like Jeff and um, Billy Corgan, these people who were friends of ours were willing to lend us their voices, we were able to reach out to like Robin Zander from Cheap Trick and John Doe from X and um, and Nina Pearson from The Cardigans, who then uh, began dating Nathan and they're, they've been married ever since. You know, so it was this really like extraordinary kind of formative um, experience for us and became our first film score and then just led into this whole uh, New York indie film world of the late 90s, which had a lot of cross pollination between uh, musicians and filmmakers. I have more questions about soundtrack music, but very quickly, I want to detour and ask how you knew Jeff Buckley. I'm, I'm from Memphis, and I remember very, very well when he died and the yeah. tragedy that it was. And, I, you know, my, I'm a huge fan. My wife is a very big fan of his as well. So I'm just curious about your yeah. relationship with him. Um, <clears throat> Jeff, Jeff first showed up at a Shutter to Think show in D.C. around Get Your Goat. And we had a mutual friend named Rachel Felder, who um, I, I don't know if she was in A&R, if she was a manager, or if she was promotion, but she was, she was around. And um, she was always touting different artists. And, you know, there was a lot of hype in the early 90s about a lot of, frankly, mediocre artists. In, in any time, there's a lot of hype around people who turn out to be only okay. There are only a few greats at any given time. Um, we so our friend our friend Rachel was like, "Listen, um, can you put this guy Jeff on the guest list for your show tonight? He's a really huge fan, 
and he's the real deal. He is truly, I don't know if she used these words, but a genius. Um, and we were like, yeah, right. Right. Cause you would hear that shit all the time and it just wasn't ever true. Um, so we put him on the list. He came to the show. We had a great show that night. It was at the nine thirty club. It was like a hometown show. We were at, you know, we were nearing the peak of our, of our powers. And he, I remember him in the dressing room later being very, very silent and very handsome in the, in the corner, you know, he was just sort of, he just sort of sat there. didn't really say much, drank, drank a beer. I think he was playing, he was like playing across the river at more of a folk club and we didn't go to see him. And we were kind of full of our own beans at that point, to be perfectly honest. Um, and frankly, we never really gave him a second thought, except that we would sort of, we didn't know who Tim Buckley was at the time. Um, we never really gave it another thought and we sort of wrote him off as like this cutie James Dean, like whatever, you know, I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's very good. You know, so is Chris Isaac. So is, uh, you know, uh, what's his face? That great, like guitar player who's like smoking hot plays with, uh, plays with Bob Dylan now. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of his name. There were all sorts of, uh, you know, there, there were always some like handsome, like pretty good singer songwriters out there. So we didn't give it a, a second thought. And then we recorded Pony Express record, I don't know, a year or two later. And um, Andy Wallace mixed the re- mixed Pony Express record. And he had, Andy had just finished producing and mixing Grace. Um, we went into the mixing studio to Andy's mixing studio to hear what he was doing with the Pony Express recordings. And it came up that he had just finished this record grace. And we were like, Oh my God, we know Jeff play us, uh, you know, play us something from it. When he put on, what's the first song Mojo pin, I guess the first song off of grace and within a minute of that song ending, I was like on the phone with Jeff. I was like, we have to get in touch with this guy. This is, this is the best music. This is the best music that we've heard. Like in an extraordinarily long time. Um, and as, and as good as anything we had ever heard. Um, so we immediately called Jeff and we're like, oh my God, dude, uh, we didn't know, <laughs> you know, it was basically the thing. Like we didn't know. Um, and then we, and then we got to be friends, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was, a, he, he and I had a complex friendship, but, but a, a lot of love ultimately. And he played bass, um, for the live version of Nathan's side project, Mind Science of the Mind. Um, he was dating Joan Wasser at the time who played in Mind Science. And, uh, and I think Nathan had played bass on the 
recording for Mind Science. So when he took it on tour, Jeff was the bass player. So there was a lot of, there was just a lot of kind of cross pollination. I was a teenager when he lived in Memphis and he had a weekly gig mm-hmm. at a small club. And I always said to myself, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go see him. There's plenty of time. He plays every week. No big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's to this day, one of my biggest regrets is not dragging myself down to one of those gigs. Yeah. Um, I won't make you feel worse about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my wife got to see him and she has some pictures from that show that are really cool. So I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. for that anyway. Yeah. Going back to, to you, I guess, um, tell me a little bit about how your approach, like how do you approach writing music for a film differently than writing a pop song? Well, I would say writing a song for myself comes more entirely from the interior, although outside factors might inspire or inform. It's all from me and for me, at least, at least initially. With, um, with a movie or, or a TV show, it's sort of the opposite. It's like you're starting from something that's outside. Um, whether it's the scene on screen or the director or producer or whoever is sort of creatively in charge, um, it starts from you or it um, and then goes inside and then comes back out. So it's, um, it's automatically um, uh, uh, writing for film and TV is more collaborative mandatorily uh, more absolutely collaborative um and and writing songs just for song sake um can be solitary although although i although i generally don't love doing anything um in total solitude I mean, that's, I I think that's like sort of the simplest answer. One of the projects that you worked on that I'm really interested in that I imagine was just a massive undertaking was when the state material got reissued for DVD, you had to go in and sort of recreate music that sort of matched the pop songs that they were using in skits at the time. Can you tell me about the challenges of going back in and having to re essentially recreate and redo music for, you know, an entire series of a television show. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so the state, it should be said it was, you know, or or to re to restate, um, it was on MTV in the nineties and MTV's mandate at that point, because they hadn't started the real world yet. They hadn't like branched out yet into other kinds of programming. The state was still one of the early, um, forays into non-music programming. So their um, MO was still to sell records. And um, the mandate to the state was to use as many popular songs from the MTV music library as possible in all of their skits. So, um, which is 
part of what made it virtually impossible to ever release on DVD or outside of MTV because the licensing, um, uh, the, the legalities and the costs of licensing, all that music w- was completely prohibitive. So when they finally decided to do it, they had to replace, you know, everything. And so, yes, that sounds like a massive undertaking and is and and would have been. But what they did, it, it really wasn't in the sense that they gave us what MTV had was this insane sound library of of every kind of music you could possibly imagine. A lot of times nowadays for um, TV shows, particularly reality TV shows, um, networks will just buy up generic libraries of music that have everything from like something that sounds like John Williams to something that sounds like the breeders to something that sounds like Nat King Cole. Um, And so they just kind of like dumped this huge massive library on us. And they were like, you can use anything you want in here. Um, our friend Charles Gonza, I think, I think what happened was like, I hired Charles, who was one of David's and my roommates and, um, and a big part of the state era and the state group. I was like, I think he was like between gigs. And I was like, hey, here's a library of 10 billion pieces of music. We need to rescore the state. <laughs> and he just he just dug through that vault and found the closest thing, you know? And if he couldn't find the closest thing to what was in the original, he would find something that he thought worked well or worked better. And if we couldn't find that, then we would make something new. You know, so it was this sort of we really didn't have a lot of time or money to do it. Um, so it was, it was more of a, it was more of like an archival exercise, not to be disappointing or mercenaries. <laughs> oh no, no. So, I mean, just curiosity. I mean, how many new pieces would you say that you guys made for that? I don't remember. I, I would say a handful. I don't even, I, I mean, I really do think that the, that the library they gave us was so comprehensive that almost everything, probably 95% of it was, was maybe even more was from the library. I would have to ask, um, I would have to ask Chazzy. He probably has a better memory of it than I do. Another one that I have to ask you about, and it's related for sure and I'm sure you get asked about this a lot is the song higher and higher from wet, hot American mm-hmm. summer. <laughs> sure. That's such an amazing song. Tell me what was the genesis of that song and, and how, what was it like putting that song together? So Theodore Shapiro, who is a dear friend and an extraordinary composer. Um, so there were these kind of two, so there was the NYU crew in college, which was like, I mean, it was basically everybody from the state. But then there was this crossover between NYU and Brown. And Michael Showalter went to Brown after a year or two at NYU. I think I could be getting that wrong. And um, he had a whole crew there. And sort of, if I was the New York music guy and more of the kind of indie weirdo, Teddy 
Theodore was the more um, uh, conservatory trained uh, brown music guy. And for the state, both Teddy and I separately would compose stuff for skits. When David and Showalter made Wet Hot American Summer, um, Teddy and I did the music for it. Uh, we knew because of the subject matter, basically Jewish summer camp in 1981, <laughs> that um, it was going to need like the whole range of our skills from like very traditional score um and very genuine heart warming tear jerking score almost inappropriately emotional score given the subject matter to um almost parody like traditional score to real music from real songs from that era to songs that you think might be real, but then you listen more closely and you're like, is this a joke? Is some, I can't tell. I feel like I know this song, you know, that type of joke song. You certainly nailed and that. Which, thank you. Which became like, which after uh, Wet Hot American Summer became like a whole side career for me of <laughs> getting to write songs that you might think are actual real songs unless you listen to them closely and then you realize it's just a total joke. Um, so we knew that the, the assignment was there's a big training montage. It's an 80s movie training montage, like a thousand 80s movies that we've seen. Um, we didn't really need a whole lot more direction than that because we were like, great, you know, you got Eye of the Tiger, Edge of Seventeen, Ride Like the Wind, and I mean, that's it. Those are the three songs that are higher and higher, I think. And so I remember we would we would work at Teddy's house, and we, were, we had the best time working on that movie. It just all totally flowed, and our skills were, uh, our skill sets were very, very complementary. Like, we each really um, brought out the best in each other, I think. And, um, and still do when we get to work together. So I remember going to his house one day because we, we, we would work in his studio. And he was like, I think I've got something for, for, for the training montage song. And so he starts playing the piano part, maybe humming along a little bit. And it's got that sort of Christopher Cross kind of ride like the wind, like piano thing. I don't know if 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 we had the sort of Eye of the Tiger, Edge of Seventeen guitar idea then. I think it might have just started with piano and then my vocals. But in very, <laughs> I'll never forget it, in very, very short order, we had, um, we had this song. And, uh, and I remember... We were singing it, and I sort of put a little uh, put a little Michael McDonald spin on the vocal. And I remember just looking at each other, and we would just laugh, laugh, especially when things were were like a bullseye. 
it would just crack us up because a there's the exhilaration of of like feeling like you're really nailing something but also the the total ridiculousness of it um basically in service of like a joke and um and i just remember when we were done there are two two main things i remember i remember teddy saying so how do you feel about the best thing um we've ever written or will ever write being um a a joke (laughs) (laughs) and and we were both like you feel pretty great about it it's it's awesome (laughs) and then the other thing and then the other thing that i remember teddy saying we couldn't find a rhyme for um wait so what's the lyric show me the fever and the fire taking it higher and higher um uh nothing to fear it's only desire taking you higher and higher ending is near the future is brighter taking it higher and higher and then we were like be a be a believer and couldn't figure out a rhyme for the next line and Teddy, and I remember he was genuinely a little shy about it because I was writing, I was doing most of the lyric because I was like the lyric guy and the, you know, the lead melody guy. And um, and he sort of bashfully looked up and was like, is <clears throat> spirit igniter a thing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, it's such a thing. <laughs> So and and I think that was the final lyric uh, for the song. Be a believer, a spirit igniter, <laughs> taking it higher and higher. And then we were done with higher and higher. And to this day, it, it remains a high water mark, <laughs> no matter how hard we try. Uh, do you do you play it at shows, or do you get requests for it when when playing shows was was a thing? I play I played at soundtrack shows, but not like show shows. It's, I don't know why I even distinguish between the two at this point, but it just feels like, I don't know. It's a, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a parody. You've gotten to make cameos and appear in a few of these films that you've worked on. One that comes to mind is Wanderlust, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies. I'm Thank you. curious what it's like to be on set like that around so many funny people is could it possibly be as much fun as it seems like it would be? Wanderlust was, yes. Yes, it is, especially on David's movies. David has David creates an extraordinary environment on his sets where everybody really has a good time and is free to just be themselves and be their best. Um, Wanderlust, well, certainly Wet Hot was what it, looks like it was like summer camp for the entire cast also everybody was young and had a lot of time and nobody with the exception of like maybe chris maloney and uh david hyde pierce really had much of a career at that point so everybody was just like hanging out and partying sleeping in bunks um and making this ridiculous movie that i don't know if anybody knew what they were making or had much of a design on what it might be, could be, or would become. Um, I only went for a little while, but it was great. It was summer camp. 
And then Wanderlust 2 had that. It felt like it had a communal vibe. And so everybody was very relaxed and really at their best. I will say, I was thinking about this cringingly the other day. David very sweetly puts me, um, gives me cameos in some of his movies. And he sort of created this minstrel uh, character, this sort of like wandering minstrel character for me in Wanderlust. And and that was from the get-go. Um, we were talking about having the music really come up from inside of the um, of the commune because it's a commune and communes have a lot of music inside of them. Um, so it made a lot of sense. But then then they sort of like exported my character back to Brooklyn where where Paul and um, and Jennifer Aniston have this whole kind of uh, a little uh, publishing yeah a publishing a bu- company a book publishing house yeah yeah and i'm like and i'm still there like sitting there playing in the background and i remember there was this one scene <laughs> and i was great with it i get i get very very um self-conscious if i'm like the focus of a scene um and uh and i turn like bright red and i start sweating and it's like really uncomfortable if there's a lot of people around and I'm hanging out or if I'm just like playing music, I'm so good. But um, there's this one scene that he shot where like, it was just me and Paul and Jennifer Aniston. And I know Paul, but I, I didn't really know Jennifer Aniston. And I'm just sitting there like playing guitar in their little book nook. And she, and, and, but the camera was like focused on me. And um, I was, drenched in sweat i was so uncomfortable and self-conscious and kind of embarrassed and then david um directed jennifer aniston to kiss me on the head right (laughs) which made it even worse because i was just like i have no hair and i was soaking wet and (laughs) i don't know if you could see it in the camera but this poor woman had to like kiss my disgusting drenched (laughs) skull and to this day i like turn red and i'm mortified thinking about it and the same thing happened there in um there was a movie i scored called laurel canyon that um that lisa cholodenko made it was her second movie shutter to think had scored her first movie high art and her second movie was all about the music scene in laurel canyon and starred francis mcdormand and there was this big party scene at the um this like rock and roll party at the uh, Chateau Marmont. And it was like Francis McDormand and, um, oh, what's his name? Great producer, produced a bunch of U2 records, not, not uh, uh, Daniel Lenoir. And, uh, and Sparkle Horse was there and a whole bunch of people. It was a big party scene. And again, there, I would, I'm fine in a party scene, but the, but, she wanted me to be the focus of the scene where I like walk into the party and everybody's excited to see me. And like Francis McDormand walks over and like gives me a huge hug. And we just kind of like improvise. And Daniel Lenoir is like, Craig, what's up? And I just, and I, and I tried to steal myself and I walked into the party action and, and, Fran, who's like an absolute doll, she just comes up and gives me the biggest hug and starts talking to me. And I just turned 
absolutely beat red so much so and just started sweating so much so that they just had to cut the whole scene <laughs> so my um so my my i i have very i have very limited uh use in movies i know for me sometimes in social settings i will clam up around comedians you know if we're just hanging out i i don't know if it's a pressure to be fun to seem as smart and funny as they are but is it's is, terrifying I was going to ask if that was something that you identified with. Oh my God. It's so, it, it, it's like the story of my life. I love when I, when I'm not hanging out with comedians and somebody says, they're like, you're funny. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Because I've spent my entire life with quite literally some of the funniest people on the planet. Um, just kind of being themselves. And so, um, you know, I guess I hope some of it has rubbed off on me. And, um, and other than that, I really just try to not get down on myself and to not compete because there's no competing. I mean, it's like, especially on Wanderlust, it's like you had Ken Marino and like Jordan Peele and Catherine Hahn. And I mean, it was just like an unbelievable, um, army and uh so entertained I, you know i'm thinking about it. when we were young i think it was more competitive just in that sense of like when you're young everybody's competing and in the state it was fucking vicious not like people were horrible to each other they loved each other so much it was very much a family but the one-upmanship i mean you can see it in the performances in those sketches um there's an intensity where everybody's trying to like out perform and out funny everybody else but now that we're older and we're all still very very close friends and in a lot of cases our kids are friends and we all still work together and everybody's had ups and downs um it's really just a just a blessing like with every year that goes by it's like more and more um holy shit how are how, how are we still doing this together um so i think there's more of an appreciation for it and less to prove yeah because we're not because we're not all trying to kind of make our way and like be seen and heard this has been an amazing conversation. I want to thank you so much for doing it. Before we go, I wanted to ask, I know you've put out a couple of singles recently that I've, I've liked them both. Um, you thank mentioned you. the Cat Stevens one, but also you have two songs, On My Tongue and Go Insane, that have come out recently. They're both really cool. I'm curious if you're building towards a new album at some point soon. Yeah, well, I mean, I have certainly have an album's worth of material, and, and I was debating about whether or not to finish it as an album and just put it out um as that kind of tome one monumental thing but the way my life is which is you know working on three or four or sometimes five shows and movies at a time and working on my own stuff and i have a whole meditation music practice that i like to do and i like to have time with my family and with my friends and for life um, 
I thought it would be better, also since just the nature of streaming and online distribution, I thought it would be better to kind of occupy myself with one personal song at a time. Because if I was waiting to finish a record, I felt like I would constantly be putting it on the back burner and having to wait until other projects for higher projects were done before I got back to finishing the record. But if I'm just working on like more bite-sized things, if I'm working on one or two songs at a time, and I know I have a deadline, a personal deadline that within like a month or six weeks, I got to get it out. And during COVID, I started, um, I set up a whole video situation in my studio. So I've been making videos too and learning how to, how to edit those. Um, so I really like the feeling of it's very interesting and something I've been thinking about for the last couple of days. It's, it's been in my mind. I love that I can take breaks from working on whatever show or film I'm on and just like play with the, the um, arrangement or production of a song and play with the visual for that song and then go back to what I'm doing um, or go back to my day job. Um, so... In the day-to-day process, I really love working like that in a non-album-oriented kind of process. But once the single's out, like there, I definitely miss that feeling of like total exhale, of like completing the novel, you know, of like finishing the record and putting it out and then doing everything you can for it. So, I mean, it's a different, there's, it's sort of a give and take, you know, there are things about it that I prefer and things about it that I miss. Once I'm done in about a year or so, I'll, I'm sure I will put it out as a proper record with like probably more of a modern type record, a streaming type record with lots of different versions. And, you know, cause they're interesting there's like an all strings version of on my tongue, which is really, really cool. Um, there's acoustic, there are acoustic versions of everything. There are, um, you know, songs that I probably won't get around to releasing as proper singles that, but that I want heard. Um, but I'm thinking of it more as like a song series than, um, than traditional singles where it's like this is the radio cut it's more just like this is the next song that i feel like sharing do you think that maybe albums proper are slowly becoming sort of a thing of the past i mean i hate to reference this but i know weird al yankovic recently said that he was no longer going to be making albums because he found the process of album making too restrictive and so he was only doing al- singles I don't know why Al would do albums. He doesn't need, he, he particularly, he doesn't need to make records um, because he's a, he's a singles guy. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you, when you think of weird Al, you're not like, Oh yeah. yeah I, you know that the UHF LP, <laughs> you know, I'll, actually I will clarify that I am one of the rare few that is nerdy enough to love weird Al Yankovic, you know, B-side album tracks, but I'm not saying I don't, I'm not saying he doesn't have good records, <laughs> but the nature of his genius lends itself toward to singles, I think, and, and single videos. 
and then you do, and then you, and then you can just put out like greatest hits records every couple of years. Do you think that's the way everything is going? No, I don't think so. I think, um, I think there's something to be said for, you know, that's sort of, this might be a reach, but, but it's kind of like saying that Twitter, you know, would end the novel or something like that, you know, which I don't necessarily, that's, it's not a great, it's not an exact analogy, um, false, false equivalence, but you get what I'm saying. Um, I think, uh, I think there's something about the gesture and the complete thought of an album. I could see, I could see the traditional album mutating into something else. But I still think that some artists will want to put out a body of work at once because uh, they come from a particular space, place, and time for, for some artists. And for others, it will make sense to just release a song or an EP or you know, even, even, even a miniature you know, just a chorus. I mean, I could see, I could see it going both directions where like albums get bigger, broader and more Im- com- complete, almost like dumps, like project dumps and where singles get even smaller, like where, where you could literally just like release a hook. Interesting. You know, like a, t- like a, like a TikTok like for TikTok. Well, once again, um, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I hope I didn't keep you for too long. Um, but this No, I, no, it's really nice to talk. I hope I didn't uh, jabber on too much. To close the show, let's hear another of Craig's recent singles. This is Going Sane.
That's the show. Thank you to my guest, Craig Wedren, and also Megan Lennon for connecting us. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening, as always. For news, music, and episode archives, visit backtothelight.net. Until next time, take care, y'all. of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.